If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. I kind of feel like we've made it. We're at the resurrection. We've dealt with all kinds of problems in the church in Corinth. We've dealt with issues of marital infidelity, sexual immorality, idolatry, We've dealt with problems of uh, one Christian thinking they can do things to spite another Christian or in the face of another Christian, to provoke other Christians. We've seen Christians taking Christians to court. We've seen all kinds of issues. We've seen all kinds of issues um, in this church. And there's a, a sense where on the tail end of the abuse of spiritual gifts, I, I felt a sort of sigh of relief that we've made it to the resurrection. And yet, this is the problem of problems in Corinth, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks together. Paul has sort of saved the best problem to last. He's sort of saved the biggest problem to last. And so you're going to see how the gospel comes in from the very beginning of this book. It was the gospel that was the solution. Paul called them saints. He said, have you forgotten what's happened to you in Christ? And we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, especially how the gospel really comes to bear uh, to deal with the biggest problem in Corinth and the biggest problems in our hearts and lives and to continue working out in us what God has planned for us. And so we're going to look this morning just at the first 11 verses of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. I know that you're sighing a sigh of relief that I'm not taking 58 verses this morning. Interestingly, 57 verses of exposition, one of application. Think about that. 57 verses of exposition about what God has done in Christ and the theology of it, and then one verse of application at the end. Interesting. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, and before we do read, let's pray, and let's ask God to really cause the power of the gospel to be manifested this morning in the preaching and hearing of his word. Let's pray. Our God, our Father who art in heaven, we do lift up our voices to you as your people, this small congregation gathered together to worship you. And Lord, we pray that we might know the power of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would remember us, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be glory. We pray that you, for your name's sake, would restore our souls, that you would cause the power of Christ crucified and risen to be felt in the inner depths of the minds and the hearts of each and every person in this room. We pray, our God, for a work, a saving work of your spirit to be present this morning, that not one soul would be left untouched, and that, oh God, this would not just be temporary illumination, but that there would be eternal fruit from what is proclaimed and heard and cherished and understood and believed and embraced. We pray, O oh God, that you would bless both the preaching and the hearing of your word and that all of us together would be sanctified in Christ. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, 
He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, that is Simon Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, as we have looked at over the last um, many months together, all of the theology that Paul has worked in this great book and all of the issues he has addressed in a church that he had planted, Acts chapter 18, he had come to Corinth, he had planted the seed of the gospel, he had preached for the first time that good news that they had never heard in a world under the darkness of false religion, in a world under the darkness of paganism and idolatry, under a world without hope, as the Bible will say, a a culture without any hope, cut off from the life of God, a, a, a people who were perishing and running straight, straight away into eternal destruction. And God had sent the apostle Paul to this congregation and he had proclaimed Jesus Christ crucified and risen and they had received the testimony. And men and women had been delivered from Satan's power and dominion and they had been plucked as brands from the fire and the gospel had shown to be what it was indeed, the very power of God unto salvation. And yet that church had turned away very quickly not just from the one who had preached that gospel unto false teachers, but even unto perversions of that gospel. And I think it's interesting that all the problems Paul has dealt with in 1 Corinthians, he has really saved the biggest and the most severe for the end of this letter. He saved for us the problem of a people who had embraced false doctrine, saying it's not necessary for you to believe in a resurrection. In fact, there is no resurrection. And that all that matters now is living now as spiritual people in the here and now because this is it. And one day we'll be disembodied spirits. And one day our bodies that we're in now will just rot away forever and that we'll be free. We'll be set free from some prison that we feel like we're in in these bodies. And Paul's going to say, oh, no, no. Oh, that's so far from the truth. And in fact, if your physical bodies do not rise, then Christ is not risen because Christ has died. And so the problem that Corinth is facing is so enormous that it's a problem of the very essence of Christianity. It is the problem of what Christianity actually is. What must I believe to be saved? What is necessary to be known and received for salvation? Far bigger than what was happening in marital relationships. Far bigger than what was happening in the inner personal relationships in Corinth, the suing and all of the selfishness and the pride and the asserting of knowledge and the asserting of freedom was that the Corinthian church was now in danger as the churches in Galatia were of turning to a false gospel. I think that's important for us because we live in a day when people will tell us, who are you to say somebody else isn't going to be saved? We are those who sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to what God has said the message of Christianity is. You know, it's sad, I don't say this to shame him, but it is sad that 
This past week, the Billy Graham Evangelical Association took Mormonism off its list of cults. Um, that's what happens when you put pol politics in front of the truth of the gospel. That's what happens. The Apostle Paul would never have done that. In fact, the Apostle Paul is going to say in this chapter, if you do not believe in the divine Christ who suffered, very God of very God who suffered for our sins in our place, substitutionary atonement, burial, death, resurrection on the third day, proving that he is the divinely exalted, ever reigning, ever powerful son of God, equal with his father in every way that you will not be saved. You will not be saved if you don't believe that. It doesn't matter if you believe in a Christ who you believe died and was buried and raised. That is not the Christ of scripture. And so Paul is going to say to the Corinthians that not only does it matter, it is foundational to Christianity. You know, it's shocking to me that that in the 21st century, we have so many Christians that are confused about the very elemental nature of Christianity. That in the 21st century, we have people who are confused about what the foundational truths necessary to believe, to be known and believed for salvation actually are. We've had all this time. You know, man boasts about increasing knowledge. Man boasts about how much he learns, how much he knows. If we can just amass more knowledge, if we can know more, if we can study the universe, if we can study the expanse reaches of the universe, if we can accumulate all this knowledge. And Paul's going to say in this chapter, you know what? The thing you need to know and the, the most fundamental thing for you to know and believe, it's not amassing all this knowledge. It's, a, it's what you've already heard. It's, a, it's what you've already known. It's what you've already believed. It's the very basic truth of Christianity that Christ died for our sins in our place, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And that that continues to work in the life of Christians. And Paul's going to say it works. The whole chapter is going to be Paul saying it works. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 2. He says, unless you believed in vain. I'll give you a little preemptive heads up here. The rest of the chapter is going to be Paul saying if the dead don't rise, Christ doesn't rise. If Christ doesn't rise, your faith is vain. Our preaching is vain. You're still in your sins. Nothing matters. We're most miserable. We are a stupid and foolish people if Jesus is not risen for believing what we believe and affirming what we affirm. This morning, let's notice in the first place that as Paul enters in on this chapter, he's going to tell the Corinthians something about the nature of the gospel. Notice in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you were saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now the very first thing that Paul is going to say to the Corinthians is you already know the remedy. You already know the solution. It's actually quite interesting that what Paul's not going to do, he's not going to bring forth anything new. Paul's not going to bring forth anything they haven't heard. And I, I think that's helpful because oftentimes the greatest solution to our biggest needs is something we already know. And yet we forget. It's what we already know, what we've already received, what we've already believed, and yet we've forgotten. And you know how I know this? Because every time we sin, we are saying, I forget what Jesus did for me. Every time we dismiss false teaching, we're saying, I forget what I've received and believed and known. Every time that we approve sin in others or dismiss things that fly square in the face of God's word, we are saying, I forget what Jesus did at the cross. Every time we sin, I'm saying, I forget. And Paul says, well, I'm here to remind you. I'm here to remind you. You know, I think about Pilgrim's Progress a lot. 
Um, there's really an illustration for every sermon in Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, it's marvelous. And um, I love how at every turn, Christian is being sidestepped off the narrow path. There's always these people, oh, no, 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 no. No, that's not really what you need to know. That's not really what you need to do. You don't have to go through this gate over here. Jump over the wall. We all jumped over the wall. We all we all got in. We just jumped in. You don't have to walk in this narrow path. You don't have to go through these difficult... Oh, just go to this mountain. You'll go there and, and you'll get that burden off your back and you'll hear these laws and these commands and you'll, you'll hear about how you can be a good person and get rid of that burden. No, no, the gospel is not true. And, and at every point, Christian's life, and that's why this is so instructive to us because you and I are Christian. And at every point in our walk through this world, we are at every stage trying to be sidestepped and sidetracked and, and a thousand voices. Listen, do you realize how damaging so much of what we watch on television is to us spiritually. Not because of morally gross and wicked things that we see, philosophies, things that go against the scripture. And Paul says, listen, brothers, I'm reminding you of what you already know, what I preach to you. The very first thing you ever heard from me is you can have your sins forgiven through a crucified Savior. That's the first thing you ever heard from me. That's what you believed. That's how you were redeemed. It wasn't self-help or power of positive thinking. Let me say this. The power of positive thinking will never break the power of sin. The power of positive thinking will never break the power of sin. Do you see the, the counterfeiting nature of people who say, we just need to think positive? Paul says, I want you to know the gospel. Gospel means good news. It's a message. Notice that Paul doesn't say, I want you to remember all the ethical teaching of Jesus first and foremost. I want to read to you this. This is amazing. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the apostle does something wonderful. It's generally amazing to the modern man, amazing to many modern Christians. You notice what he tells us about this Christ, the Messiah. You notice the facts that he selects. He doesn't tell us about his teaching. This is the message I deliver to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Doesn't this fill you with amazement? Why doesn't he tell them about the teaching of the Lord in the Gospels? He doesn't do that. You see, this is the essential Christian message. The apostle says the person, his death. The first thing that he preached to them was not the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because the Sermon on the Mount never saved anybody and never will. If you really want to know your size spiritually, read the Sermon on the Mount. Boy, Jen says, I don't mean read it casually as in an armchair. I mean, read it as you ought to read it. You'll soon be lying on your face in the dust, licking the dust of the floor. Now, if you're a Christian, you know that. You know that when you read the ethical teaching of Jesus, it leaves you feeling condemned often because we're not good people by nature. The natural man is completely unlike God and even redeemed people fail in so many ways. And so it's the gospel. It's the message. It's the news. Remember, me telling you what to do is good advice. Me telling you what Jesus has done is good news. And so Paul's saying, I came to you with news. I came to you with good news. I came to you with the best news. I came to you with the news about how your sins were placed on the Savior at Calvary, how he died for your sins, how he was buried, how he was raised for your sins. And I've told you this many, many times in this church. 
This is not intro to Christianity stuff. This is Christianity. This is not beginning of the Christian life entry point stuff. This is all of the Christian life stuff. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus never stops working. It never stops working for you and on you. And so Paul reminds them. He says it's a message that you've received. It's a message that you've heard. It's a message that you are called now to hold fast to. Notice in verse 2, he says, if you hold fast to the word, I preach to you. Unless you believe in vain. This year, I have watched one of my friends in the PCA go to Rome. I've watched two friends in Reformed denominations leave their wives and walk away from the faith. Pastors, all pastors. All who had as much knowledge as your pastor, all who had faithful ministries, some of whom wrote books and were very well known and well thought of. They didn't hold fast. They walked away. They walked away. Ministers of the gospel, don't you dare think you won't. If you let go of those truths, if you don't hold fast to them, if you don't continue to deeply saturate your mind and heart with them at every point and every turn, you will also walk away. Now, it's not only up to you. I know that. I know that no one can be snatched out of Christ's hands. I know that all that the Father gave the Son will come to him. We'll be safe. I get that. But we have a responsibility, Paul says. Part of the nature of the gospel is it's something we must hold fast to until the end. Now, it's interesting in verses 3 and following because most people are going to rush to talk about the historical verification and they're going to kind of do the leaky bucket, I have more water than you and so Christianity's true, look, 500 people saw this. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul declares that message very clearly. Notice what he does in, in, in verse 3. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance what you received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and to the other apostles, and then to James and then to me. Now what Paul's doing is, Paul is primarily appealing to the Old Testament scriptures. Paul, and this is very important and very interesting, William still said this, Paul prefers the witness of scripture to the witness of 500 eyewitnesses. He starts with the witness of scripture. He's not saying the witness of 500 eyewitnesses is unimportant. It is important. But he starts with the witness of Scripture. He's saying the message that we preach to you is the message of the Old Testament. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus everywhere. It's not just a few prophecies. It's not just here and here and here and here and this big prophecy here and Isaiah 53 here. It's the whole Old Testament is preparing us for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Even Jonah going into the belly of the fish and being spit out, thrown up out of the fish, Jesus says is pointing to his death and resurrection. All of it. Israel going into exile and then being brought out and restored is a picture of death and resurrection of the true Israel, Jesus Christ. Every part of the Old Testament is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is marvelous. If you want to get your Bible, if you want the big key, that makes sense of everything, get that the whole Old Testament is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. When God floods the world in judgment, that is death. When he brings Noah and his family out to a new creation, that is resurrection. When God floods the Egyptians in the Red Sea, that is death. When he brings Israel out as a typical new creation, that's resurrection. 
All of that is pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think what Paul says, uh, this is in accord with the scripture. He doesn't mean just a few prophecies. He's saying the Bible teaches this. Now, this is interesting. When the risen Jesus meets with the doubting disciples on the Emmaus Road, how does he strengthen them in faith and prove that he's been risen? Not by saying, here I am, guys, it's me. But by breaking open the scriptures. Jesus breaks open the scriptures. He breaks bread. They are revealed. They see, they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us on the road and when he opened the scriptures? You see, beloved, our religion is a religion of the scriptures. The message we believe, this is not, this is not man-made up. This is divinely inspired. The whole Old Testament preparing us for Christ. I know it sounds mean to say, these people are going to go to hell for not believing what we believe. I know. It's what the Bible teaches. It's what God says in his word. If you do not believe the message of scripture, you will not be saved. How do I know that? Because the rich man who's in hell and Lazarus in, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus begs that Abraham send somebody back from the dead to prove to his unbelieving brothers that Christianity is true. And Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, I think there's a point here we can make, and that point is, if you are finding yourself doubting, if you're finding your heart hard toward the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't like listening to the preaching, you don't like reading your word, what you need to do is read the word. Sinclair Ferguson very helpfully, I think, says, um, commenting on 1 Timothy 4, where Paul tells Timothy, the time will come when people, because they have itching ears, will heap up teachers and they'll turn away from the truth and they won't want to hear it. And, and then Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. And Sinclair says, the remedy in a time when men and women don't want to hear the word, the remedy to hearts that are hardened to the word is the preaching of the word and the reading of the word. And so if your heart has grown dull, if the things of the gospel don't seem as exciting, if they don't seem as impacting, I think one of the big reasons is that you're probably not sitting and meditating and pouring over and comparing scripture with scripture and having your soul strengthened in the word. This is the means God has appointed. This is it. You know, I alluded to in my pastoral prayer, um, Psalm 119, interesting, one I know you're all hoping I'll never read in one sitting in church, long as our ser services may be. Um, but David writes 176, I'm sorry, 175 verses about the nature of God's written and inspired word. And then he ends the psalm with this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. How does God seek us? Through his word. Paul says, the message I preach to you, the message that you receive, the message by which you are saved is a message that is in accord with the Holy Scriptures. Now, you may say, where's the resurrection? You know, you talked about Noah coming off the ark to a new creation and, and Israel coming through the Red Sea and coming out as a new creation in a sense. Where's the resurrection in the Old Testament? Well, let me put it this way. Job, Abraham, Moses, David, and Daniel all spoke about the resurrection. Job 19.25, Job says in the midst of his suffering, I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he shall stand upon the earth and then with my flesh I shall see God, I, even I, will appear before him. Job understood that the Redeemer was coming and that there would be a bodily resurrection. 
Abraham looked by faith to a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God, not to the nation of Israel. He looked past it. He knew it was about a resurrection. Joseph, what did Joseph do? Joseph told Israel, in 400 years, God's going to bring you up from here. And when he does, take my bones. How's that going to help Joseph? Joseph realizes there's a resurrection. He knows those bones are going to be raised up. He wants to be in the land of promise when that happens so that God's promise is magnificently realized on that great day. Daniel, turn in your Bibles, would you, to Daniel 12. Daniel chapter 12, one of the greatest of the resurrection statements in the Old Testament, verses 2 and 3. And interestingly, as you're turning there, I'll say, the reason Paul does what he does and says according to the Scriptures is he's saying to the Corinthians, you should have known this. They were denying the bodily resurrection. And Paul's saying, you should have known that according to the Scriptures all the things about Christ and then your own resurrection were taught. Notice in Daniel 12, 2 and 3, he says that in the last day, as it were, many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's the resurrection. Daniel's saying, some will awake to the resurrection of life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection was the first fruits. Now, that's why Paul in the second place is going to talk about the historical witness. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, when we come to the historical witness, Paul's not saying, look, 500 people saw, because, you know, I can hear every objection from every unbeliever. Well, 500 people that like this could make up a story and all say we all saw that. That's why Paul doesn't start with that. That's why Paul starts with the scriptures. Uh, uh, Carl F. Henry, and you may want to cover your children's ears, I realize this, but Carl F. Henry, the great evangelical leader of the 20th century, said about this verse, according to the scriptures, not the old teenagers, come on, young kids, God has spoken, shut up. God has spoken, so shut up. God has spoken, receive his testimony, let every mouth be stopped. God has spoken. God has revealed. God has declared that Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised. And notice, as Paul goes on now and he develops it, he speaks about those resurrection appearances. It was important that if Christ was risen, then others would have experienced that, would have seen that. And so he goes through, if you were to take all the gospel accounts, if you were to take all of the end of the Gospels and you were to put them all together and say, okay, here he appears to this one and then eight days later to these people and then he comes to the disciples in a locked room and he shows up and Thomas is there and he shows Thomas his hands and his side and Thomas believes and then he shows himself to a big group and we're told many were there and some doubted and others believed and, and Paul is going to tell us, listen, here's, here's how often the resurrection of Jesus was verified. He says he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have, have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as one uh, literally aborted, uh, our translations say untimely born, he appeared also to me. And what Paul's going to say is that 
not only is the resurrection of Jesus scriptural, not only was it proved biblically, but that it was witnessed repeatedly, Jesus repeatedly in those 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, he repeatedly showed himself to his disciples to encourage their faith and your faith. And then, after all that, as Paul's traveling on the Damascus Road, Jesus, the glorious Jesus, appeared. And Paul doesn't see him, does he? He sees the light. He sees the glory. He is blinded by the glory. He falls on his feet. The worst persecutor of the church witnesses the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says, all of that ought to affirm to you that he's risen. Can you be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? No. No. I don't care if you tack mainline on what you say you are. Christianity is founded on the atoning death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures? Do you believe that he really died and was buried? Do you believe that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures? Now, it's interesting how Paul kind of weaves together in this chapter, not just the facts of Christianity, but the doctrine, the theology of it. Uh, Robert Canlish says, to say that Christ died is a historical fact. To say that he died is a historical fact. To say that he died for our sins is a religious doctrine. You see, Paul wants you to see the theology. He doesn't want you just to say, yeah, it happened historically. He wants you to understand the theology of these things. The historical eyewitness accounts just go to bolster the truth of the theology of it. Now, this is amazing. In, in the final place here in these verses, Paul now gives a kind of a personal bio and what I think Paul's doing is Paul's saying, listen, it worked for me, and it will work for you as it has worked for you. I think what Paul's saying is, remember who I was. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, I wrote a blog post that Ligonier linked to for their uh, ministry, prison ministry, and uh, there's a man who goes to my seminary, um, and he was... Um, he was in a white supremacist group. He committed a lot of really horrific crimes. Um, you know, I'm usually the guy with the, the worst rebellion in my past in the room. This guy, vastly worse. Um, just a downward spiral of rebellion and wickedness, violence, theft, all kinds of corruption. And in prison, the Lord Jesus set him free through the gospel, through this message. And today, this man is in a Reformed Presbyterian seminary with a wife in ministry. And you know what? Whatever you want to say, I will say this. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen naturally. That kind of thing doesn't happen. People, people change. People, people grow up, if we can use a worldly phrase. They grow up, but they don't have that kind of change. That is a resurrection. That's a resurrection. To go from stabbing people of another race to proclaiming the gospel to everyone is, an, is a resurrection. The Apostle Paul was stoning Christians, dragging them off into prison, killing them. And he had a resurrection. He had a spiritual resurrection. And notice what Paul says, the gospel works. He says in verse 9 and following, I'm the least of the apostles. 
He says, I shouldn't even be an apostle. I shouldn't have even been a witness to Jesus. I have nothing in myself that should have made me a witness. I wasn't there with him. I was opposing him. I was against him. I used all my energy to fight against him. I hated listening to the message. I hated hearing about him. I hated the people that worshipped him. I hated Jesus. And Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Beloved, the gospel is so big and so powerful. You know, I meet a lot of people, and there are a lot of people I know that hate Jesus. You can see it on their face. Hate the word, hate the gospel, wear it on their face. And you know what? The only hope I have is that there is a resurrection power that God can work in those people. And he can break apart their hard, filthy, black, stony hearts. And that because of his death for their sins and his resurrection, he can take the vilest, most hard, most unbelieving, the person that hates listening to the gospel, and he can make them the greatest champion of the gospel. can make them the greatest champion. He can take that enmity and hostility and all of that, all of that drive that a person like Paul has, and he can then, through resurrection power, make them use that for the spread of the gospel. And notice what Paul says. He says... He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I labored more than all the other apostles. Think about that. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't James. It wasn't John. It wasn't the three that were at the transfiguration. It wasn't the three that saw Jesus raise people from the dead. It wasn't the three with him in the garden. It wasn't John standing at the foot of the cross watching him die. It wasn't any of them that labored like that. It was the apostle Paul as one born out of time. Because the gospel is so powerful. I'm going to close, and I'm going to just ask you this question. Do you want power in your life? Do you want power in your life? Lloyd-Jones, who I quoted earlier, was a very interesting man who left the medical field to go into the gospel ministry and had a very powerful impact in England. Still to this day, they... People revere the doctor, they call them. Lloyd-Jones had a powerful preaching ministry, and he had power. There was something about his preaching. It was not different than a lot of the preaching that you hear today. Good preaching is expository. It was scriptural. It was gospel-centered. But there was something in Lloyd-Jones' life that on one occasion, a witch, a woman who had been deeply um, entrenched in witchcraft, had come to um, Westminster Abbey. And it heard Lloyd-Jones preach, and she said, I've seen power. She said, and I see power in him, and it's a clean power. And it's a power that I've never seen demonstrated before. And what that woman was seeing was the power of the crucified, buried, and risen Jesus. It wasn't Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones was actually somewhat boring in his presentation and delivery. There was a, there was a resurrection power in Jesus Christ. Now, do you want power? Because that power is there for you. That power over sin. What are you, what sins are you struggling with? What is the sin that you just keep going back to every week? Why do I keep going back to this? What are the sins? Maybe you're, maybe you've never experienced resurrection power. Maybe you're just a dead man walking. That's what the world is. The unbelieving world is just dead men walking. There is power in the gospel. There is power. Somebody asked me, uh, recently, what was it that changed you from my past? And I love getting that question because I get to say, I knew that 
Christ had substituted himself to take the wrath for sinners, that his blood was the price to forgive sinners, and that he had been raised from the dead. I had heard that message thousands and thousands of times growing up. And it was when I realized how sinful I was, and I remembered that message, that God worked resurrection power in my soul in an instant. This is what Wesley said, right? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. What is that? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, beloved, that's what happens to every believer. If you're in Christ, that's what's happened to you. You've received that. Pray that you would know that again. Remember that, that you would know more of that power, that God would refresh your soul with more of that. If you're not in Christ, you need a spiritual resurrection. It's only going to come through this message. I want to encourage all of you, one final thing. We need to be a lot more fervent in reading the scriptures. I've been convicted more than ever this year about how much we need to be in the scriptures. There's no power if you're not receiving the testimony of the gospel from the scriptures. God is invested. I don't understand how it all works. I just know that he is the infinite God and he does this, but he has invested all the power that you need into what is written in here. And that as we read and study and meditate and believe, we're transformed and changed and we realize that we too have a resurrection coming and that we hope in that resurrection. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we, we do lack power. Lord, we ask that you would make us to know the power of the gospel, of the death of our Savior, of his burial, of his resurrection. You would make us to be people who have that resurrection power demonstrated in our lives and who with Paul say, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and yet that grace was such that I labor more abundantly than all. We pray, O God, that you would increase our faith. We pray that you would show us our sin and our need for the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us a confident faith that he is risen. He is risen for us, that our life is hidden in him, that we are risen with him. Father, make us to love the gospel and to believe it and to hold fast to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.